0: In the week after the rising of 1916 a Dublin Castle Bulletin announced that of the insurgents held under arrest close on 100 were women. The figure was as nearly accurate as made little matter in those days of rumour and wild report but it did not represent with any approach to truth the number of women who had taken part in the rising. From the GPO alone close on 40 members of Common Amman who had been on duty with the garrison since the reading of the proclamation on Easter Monday ...was sent away through the enemy lines to safety on the eve of the General Surrender. At other posts throughout the city, like evacuation of women insurgents took place. All in all, the number of women to see service in Easter week... ...must have been nearer to 200 than to 100. All, or virtually all of the women insurgents... ...were members of mBan or the Irish Citizen Army. The vast majority of them came from Dublin City. But some came longer journeys on their road to revolution, amongst them the daughter of James Connolly, Nora Connolly, Nora Connolly
1: O'Brien. It was on the Saturday afternoon before Easter that we left Belfast to go to Tyrone. The station was thronged, I never saw a station so full, but we were lucky. We got a carriage, several carriages indeed to ourselves. We were all in great spirits, and we had a piper with us. When we arrived at at our destination, we were met. The volunteers marched off just wherever they were being billeted. But we were taken to a hotel. There were six girls. And then a messenger came and said they were looking for Miss Connolly. And I went out. I was met by two men told me they were from Dublin they were from uh, not from Dublin but they were from McCullough and they had been to him with a message from Dublin they told me that there'd be no fighting in Tyrone but they thought the fighting would go on in Dublin so I had my choice of either returning to Belfast or going on to Dublin so I decided I had no choice I was to go on to Dublin if there was no fighting in Tyrone. We arrived in Dublin about six o'clock in the morning at Eamon Street. And I walked over to Liberty Hall and I went along the corridor down to the end, past number seven, the office where my father usually worked. And in a room at the end of the hall, there was another man standing outside that door. And when I went in... There was my father on a little cot in the middle of the room. He wasn't asleep. He turned and he looked at me. He says, what are you doing here, Nora? So I told him what had happened. And I said to him, Daddy, what does it mean? We're not going to fight. And he turned to me and two big tears rolled down his cheeks. He says, if we don't fight, Nora. We can only pray for an earthquake to come and swallow us and our shame." But then he said, why are you down here? Why aren't you with the men in the Norths? And I told him again what had happened, explained it, described the men coming into the station, marching in just as we left. So he sat up quite excited. He said, this story is true, Nora. I said, yes. I said, I have six girls with me. I said, they're downstairs. Bring them up and ask them. I said, don't depend on my story if it's important. Oh, he says, it's very important. So he knocked told me to call the man who was outside the door, and I called him in, and he told him to go and get the girls and bring them up. When the girls came up, he asked them where they had been, and he told him, they told him exactly the same story. And he said to the citizen army man, go and get the officer of the guard. And when the officer of the guard came along, he said, I want six men to escort these girls. And he told him when the officer came with the six men. Each of us were to go to one person to some place he would tell us, and to the person we met there, we were to tell exactly the same story, answer any questions that they might ask, and when it was finished to say that James Connolly wants you to come to Liberty Hall as soon as possible. So that's what happened. They all went off to different people, different addresses, and mine was to Sean McDermott over in Parnell Square. I told pa- Sean McDermott what the story. He asked me one or two questions, and he said, Tell your father I'll be over as soon as possible. And I got back to the hall and repeated my message. Daddy was up then and around, and by, one by one the girls came back, and they said they're coming over as soon as possible. It was nearly seven by now, so we went off and got seven o'clock mass. And when we came back, a number of them were in the room. There was Sean McDermott. And there was Patrick Pierce. And while we were waiting there, Daddy asked us, could we not make some breakfast? Somebody would need breakfast. So we got busy making breakfast. It's a great matter of pride to me now to think that the last Easter Sunday breakfast I made Oh, the, what, the last Easter Sunday breakfast that was eaten by the signatories of the Proclamation of the Republic was made by me. After they had finished their breakfast, they went off to another room. And Daddy turned back to me and he said, Nora, you stay in this hall until I tell you you can go. So I stayed about all day long. Up and down the stairs of the hall were very busy, people coming and going. And then finally, I note went down. I got tired of hanging around the corridors, and went down to the great front door, and saw a crowd had gathered outside the hall, with their eyes fixed on the windows, as if they knew something was happening and were there to know and wait and get the first news. Several of my friends came, who were in the volunteers or in the fiend, and asked me what was the news. I said I had no news. So I was told to wait there. I couldn't. Give them any further news than that. I think it was nearly six o'clock when the, my father sent for me. And there was a look of great joy in his eye. And he said, It's all right, Nora. It's all right. You won't be shamed. Then he told me that they would not want me until the next morning. And I was to take the girls off and see they all got asleep and come down first thing in the morning. So I took them off up to Madame Markovich's house. We slept there and we were down next morning before eight. When I went down to the room in Liberty Hall, there were a few of them there before me. I can picture that room tint just now. Sean McDermott was sitting over at the corner of the table, very quiet, but his lovely blue eyes gleaming. And Tom Clark was sitting by the side, very quiet, controlled, sort of divine contentment on him. Project Pierce came in, and he was rather solemn. And Joseph Plunkett came in, looking very soldierly in his uniform, and the white bandage around his, shoulder, his throat just peeping above his collar, and his slouched hat tucked on, the sort of a devil-may-care way. And Thomas McGillaner came in, too, beaming, gay, laughing. My father was behind in the doorway. Pierce said he wanted us to go back to Tyrone, and he would give us messages to carry. He said he would also give us something to read. I wanted us to read it very carefully, as he could not let us have a copy of it. It would be dangerous for us to carry it. But he wanted us to read it very, very carefully and, if possible, re- memorize sentences of it so that we could repeat them to the men we would meet again in Tyrone. And he went off, as I thought, to get the paper, whatever it was he wanted us to read. My father said, Come with me, Nora, I want you. So he brought me back into number seven, which was his office. And he said, Nora, you're going out into the country now. We will be fighting at 12 o'clock. The fighting will begin, and you'll be out in the country. You don't know what will happen. The police may be soldiers. You'll want something to protect yourself and to protect the girls with you. And he gave me a revolver and a box of cartridges. And then he put his arm around my shoulder and brought me back into the room. Pierce had just arrived, and he opened the paper. It was a proclamation of the Republic. And he read it out to us, so that we could all gather round him and held it so that we could all gather round him and read it with him. And then he gave us the dispatches. Then he turned around and, almost as words of benediction, blessed us and wished us luck on our road. And Tom McDonough turned in a fleering, jeering way, began to mock us, and said, "What well, great patriots you are! Here we are, just waiting to..." F- Get into revolution and all you're thinking of is how soon you can get out of Dublin. My father put his short arms around my shoulder and walked me down to the corridor, the end of the corridor. And I left Liberty Hall and started back on my journey to Tyrone.
0: The word which Nora Connolly O'Brien brought back to the North was proclaimed in Dublin on Easter Monday. At noon, watched by a bank holiday crowd, a column of armed men seized the GPO proclamation of the Irish Republic was read and the building garrisoned. In that garrison were women of mBan, among them Louise Gavin Duffy.
2: I was in mBan, but at the time of the Rising I had left my usual address and gone to the other side of town so I got no summons. The first word I got of the Rising was when someone rushed in and spoke of having seen wounded men in northumberland road i went out and went down to the gpo and asked to go in i asked to see Patrick pierce and he told me i might stay i told him i would rather not take part in the actual fighting and he sent me up to the kitchen where I spent the week. We were busy all the week preparing meals and washing up. At the end of the week the order came for the women to evacuate the post office. Some of us went down to Mr. Patrick Pierce and asked if those in the kitchen might stay on, and he allowed us. That was on Friday morning. On Friday evening, everyone was to leave the GPO, and we were to go with the few wounded men, to take them to a safe place. Some of the men broke away through houses in Henry Street. And we set out from the back of the GPO. We were in charge of Desmond Fitzgerald, who was to lead us. We went through the houses. Till we got to a waxwork show and we went out and through into Prince's Street and through a lane into Abbey Street and there we met some British soldiers with an officer who stopped us and asked us who we were and where we were going. Our party was headed by someone carrying a white flag on account of the wounded men, of whom there were about six or seven, only one of them being very seriously wounded. He had to be carried. The officer agreed to accompany us to Jervis Street. I suppose he thought we were a party that had been Uh, caught out in the street, and the wounded men hurt there. At any rate, he took us to Jervis Street, and when we got there, the nuns brought us in. The men who had not been wounded were taken away by the British officer, among them Desmond Fitzgerald, who came to say goodbye and send a message to his people. Uh, the nuns then took charge of the wounded men, brought them up into the wards, and lost them among the other invalids, the other patients. Uh, they, those of us, the women that were there, were allowed to sleep down in a waiting room on the floor until the next morning.
0: In O'Connell Street, in St. Stephen's Green, at a score of other points the barricades were up. But it was in the shadow of Dublin Castle that the first shots of the 1916 Rising were fired. The city clocks were striking noon on Easter Monday as those shots were fired. At the head of a small citizen army column Sean Connolly led the attack on the castle yard and its guardroom and then seized the city hall. Of his party, of 19, ten were men, nine women. Helena Maloney was one of those women. She talks of her comrades in arms. When people question me
3: about the part women played in Ireland's last fight for freedom, I feel they might as well ask me, what did the tall fair-haired men do in the wars, and what did the small dark men do? My answer in both cases has to be the same. They did what came to their hands to do from day to day and whatever they were capable of by aptitude or training. I worked with a section of women who always believed in the use of physical force by men and women alike to achieve the freedom of Ireland in so far as it could be effectively used. I was a member of the Irish Citizen Army whose idea of freedom was of the widest and most comprehensive kind the abolition of the domination of nation over nation, class over class, and sex over sex. We women, therefore, had, as part of our military duty, to knit and darn, march and shoot, to obey orders in common with our brothers-in-arms. On Easter Monday at 12 noon, I and eight other women were detailed to Captain Sean Connolly's party to attack Dublin Castle. We were the first to move off as James Connolly attached psychological importance to having the first shot fired at that ancient citadel of British tyranny. The citizens did not heed us as we marched through College Green and Dame Street, for route marches were a daily occurrence at that time. We had just reached the castle gates when they were slammed in our faces. Our party then climbed over the low walls of the City Hall and took possession of that building. Other groups of Captain Connolly's company took over the evening mail office and Himes, a big tailor shop at the other corner of Parliament Street. Desultory firing took place between our men and the castle troops. About 2pm, Captain Connolly ordered me to go to the GPO and report what we had done and ask for reinforcements if that were possible. On my way in Dame Street, I met Frank Sheehy Skeffington. He looked pale and anxious, but apparently oblivious of the flying bullets. I told him my errand and went on. He was on duty to preserve civil order. Being a sincere pacifist, he would not kill for Ireland, although he was willing to die for her, as he subsequently did, and for his own particular principles of peace and freedom. On my return, I joined Captain Connolly on the roof, where he was directing the fire of his men from behind the chimneys and parapet. Almost immediately, he was hit, and was attended by Dr. Kathleen Lynn, medical officer of the Citizen Army, who was making her rounds of the various Citizen Army posts. She said he was mortally wounded, and Jenny Shannon breathed an act of contrition into his ear as he died. Captain Jack Riley then took over. When darkness fell, there was a sudden outburst of machine-gun fire from the castle at both ground and roof level. The noise was deafening. The back windows were all blown in and large blocks of plaster came crashing down from the domed ceiling to the floor. One wounded man we protected from broken glass, bullets and falling debris in a hooded porter's chair pressed close to one of the big pillars. Suddenly a voice from the back windows on the ground floor called up to, called upon us to surrender in the King's name. After some minutes, Dr. Lin, with our consent, walked towards the voice and said, we surrender. The men had to be rounded up with difficulty, being scattered through the building and the place being in pitch darkness. We women were taken out through the back windows. The soldiers thought we were civilians detained against our will in the building, and Jenny Shanahan quickly took advantage of their error. The officer asked her, when did they take you? Did they ill-treat you? How many men are there? She replied at once, they were kind to us but there are hundreds and hundreds of them and they're all along the roofs down the street. Naturally the British army was chary of entering the building in pitch darkness in which there were hundreds and hundreds of the enemy and it was some days before the whole of Captain Connolly's party was finally rounded up. We women were brought to a disused room in Ship Street barracks and served out with verminous blankets and cushions. The cast-offs from the troops at the front... For the first few days we got the ordinary food of British soldiers, but after that we were served with hard biscuits and bully beef, at which we rejoiced, believing mistakenly that the British troops were now marooned in the castle. The general surrender, alas, came all too soon, and we were taken first to Richmond Barracks and then to Kilmainham Jail, which had at that time been disused for about 25 years. We were kept in cells in what was afterwards known as D-Wing, Many other women from the various positions were brought there, including Countess Markovich, Countess Plunkett, and Miss Grace Skifford, who was married in one of the cells to Joseph Plunkett on the eve of his execution. After living for some weeks in extreme dirt, we were removed to Mountjoy Prison, and there for the first time in weeks, we had the luxury of a bath and unlimited drinking water. In the following weeks, there were many new women prisoners and many releases, and sometime in July, five of us were sent to Lewis Prison in England. Miss Nell Ryan of Wexford, happily still with us, Winifred Tarney of Belfast, who was James Connolly's private secretary in the GPO, Mary Paroles, Breith Foley, and myself. We were detained in Lewis until we were brought before a court in the House of Lords, after which Mary Paroles and Breith Foley were released. And Nell Ryan, Winifred Carney, and myself were sent to Aylesbury Convict Prison, where Countess Markovich was already serving a life sentence. We remained there until Christmas and were then released. After that, another long chapter could be written on the work of Women for Ireland, but as I said in the beginning, we just did what came to our hands from day to day and as we were ordered. But behind the simple acts of making tea, sewing buttons, defying prison regulations, there lay the great upsurge of spiritual idealism, out of which, as our greatest poet has sung, a terrible
0: beauty was born. All through the week, while shells fell and fire blossomed out of the ruins of bombed outposts, the women of the rising stayed by their posts. Women couriers maintained lines of communication through bullet-swept streets, women cared for the wounded in garrisons that were slowly reduced to rubble. It was a woman who went out from the ruins of the GPO to carry Pierce's request for a parley to the British commander. It was a woman who brought the order of general surrender to the commanders of outlying posts. Women took their place shoulder by shoulder with the men of the fighting lines. In St. Stephen's Green and later in the College of Surgeons, Commandant Michael Mallon had, as his second-in-command, Countess Markovitch, and with her were some two-score women of the Citizen Army. One of those was Margaret Skinner, who recalls for us the spirit and the story of those days 40 years ago. To
4: those of us who took an active part in the fighting, it seems like yesterday. When carrying dispatches to the GPO, I met Tom Clark, whose 15 years in a British jail had failed to quench his spirit. Patrick Pierce, the quiet teacher the indomitable soldier. James Connolly, whose life work had been devoted to the cause of the working man and woman, and who a few days later was strapped into a chair to face the firing squad, being unable to stand because of his wounds. Michael Mallon I remember particularly. He was in command of the Irish Citizen Army in St. Stephen's Green area, to which I was attached. He was a competent officer, cool in action, as was evidenced when he barely paused in his conversation when an enemy bullet passed through his hat on the first day in St. Stephen's Green. Nevertheless, he was always gentle and considerate, and when I heard, while I was in hospital, of his execution, I remembered his gentleness and kindness to me when I lay wounded in the College of Surgeons. You would never have guessed looking at him, so quiet and restrained, that he had been waiting for years for the day when he would be fighting for Ireland. As a boy of 14, he had enlisted in the British Army to get experience with which to fight Britain. When he was stationed in India, he said he had lain awake night after night planning how someday he could put his military knowledge at Ireland's service. Six days he fought for Ireland. Eight days he lay in prison. Now he was dead. Countess Markievicz was second in command. I first met Madam, as she was affectionately known in Dublin, at her home at Surrey House, Rathmines. It is hard now to think of that hospitable house with the life gone out of it and its mistress long gone from us. Madam, who kept open house for all the friends of Ireland, who founded the Fianna, who opened her house to the strikers in 1913, who sold her jewels to obtain money for the soup kitchens for their families, who spent her money on arms and ammunition, who shouldered a rifle for the freedom of her country, who suffered imprisonment and faced death for her sake. She was sentenced to death after the rising. The sentence later commuted to life imprisonment. On Easter Monday, I was sent to scout ahead of our contingent to Stephen's Green. There were no soldiers in sight, only a solitary policeman standing at the end of the green. This was the last policeman I saw until after the rising was over. They had simply disappeared from the streets. It was a great moment for me when between the branches of the trees I caught sight of men in dark green uniforms coming along in twos and threes to take up their positions in and about the green. Their numbers were few, but behind them I could see in the spring sunlight those legions of Irish men who made their fight against us heavy or heavier odds and who, though they died, had left us their dream to make real. Perhaps this time, I thought... At last, all the men were standing ready, awaiting the signal. In every part of Dublin, similar small groups were waiting for the hour to strike. The revolution had begun. When carrying dispatches to the GPO, I saw the charge of the Fifth Lancers down O'Connell Street and their repulse by fire from the GPO garrison. I also saw the hoisting of the tricolor on the GPO. A few days later, while it was still waving, James Conley wrote, For the first time in 700 years, the flag of a free Ireland floats triumphantly over Dublin City. On my return from the GPO, I saw Madame Markievicz and William Partridge turn back a column of British soldiers who were advancing down Harcourt Street. Madame had shot the two officers at the head of the column. Monday night we spent in Stephens Green. On Tuesday morning, we realised that our position was untenable as British troops had succeeded in gaining possession of the Shelburne Hotel and were firing on us from the roof. We then evacuated the Green and took possession of the College of Surgeons. Before we left the Green, we lost one of our men, James Fox, who a few moments before had been singing, Wrap the Green Flag Round Me, boys. In the College of Surgeons with us, there were a few Fianna boys, one of them, Tommy Keenan, who was only 12 years of age, was persuaded by us to go home and tell his parents where he had been. As we expected, his father kept him at home and even locked him in his room, but Tommy escaped out of a window and returned to the College of Surgeons. At the surrender, he was imprisoned with 50 other Fiena boys, but to their chagrin, at the end of two weeks, they were released. On Wednesday night, two squads were detailed to cut the British lines of communication in Harcourt Street. In this action, one of our men, Fred Ryan, was killed and I was wounded. Councillor Partridge helped to carry me back to the College of Surgeons. After the surrender, he was sentenced to 15 years' imprisonment. Miss French Mullen dressed my wounds and attended me until the surrender when I was removed to St. Vincent's Hospital. While in hospital, I learned that Chris Caffrey, who carried dispatches after I was wounded, had been stripped and searched by British soldiers at Trinity College. Chris had swallowed her dispatch before they dragged her from her bicycle. At the time of the Rising, I was a stranger in Dublin and regret that I am unable to mention by name most of those with whom I was associated in St. Stephen's Green and the College of Surgeons. Among those in the College of Surgeons whose names I did know were Bob de who died some years ago, Joe Connolly, whose brother Sean Connolly was killed in the attack on Dublin Castle on the Monday of Easter week and Frank Robbins, now an official of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. As a tribute to the men and women of 1916, I should like to quote from Patrick Pearce's last proclamation, April 28, 1916. For four days they have fought and toiled, almost without cessation, almost without sleep, and in the intervals of fighting they have sung the songs of the freedom of Ireland. No man has complained, No man has asked why. Each individual has spent himself happy to pour out his strength for Ireland and for freedom. If they do not win this fight, they will at least have deserved to win it. But win it they will, though they may win it in death. Already they have won a great thing. They have redeemed Dublin from many shames and made her name splendid among the names of cities.